Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another day in another podcast. Today is April 5th, and I am Delaney Howell. Joining me is my co-host, Mike Pearson. Mike, how are you doing today? Because I'm doing much better than yesterday. I'm glad to hear that. Delaney, did you get some sleep last night? I did. I slept until 8.15 this morning. My goodness. I know. We do need to get you some livestock. It's your reason to get up in the morning. Yeah, I I usually don't sleep in past seven, but uh, I stayed up late last night working on some homework and took an exam and thought I deserved a little sleeping in. Well, yeah, yeah. I, I tell you what, actually, how's the weather up there in Iowa? It is still gloomy. We saw sunlight for maybe an hour or so yesterday, but it was like half the sky in Des Moines was dark and half of it was a little sunny, so. Not great, but hopefully this weekend I think it's supposed to be nicer. Okay. Um, but you are not in Iowa, so tell our listeners what you're doing. That's right. I am not in Iowa. I'm currently south. I have been on a bit of a road trip this week or a bit of a of a travel week. I was in Kearney, Nebraska yesterday for the Nebraska uh, Bankers Agribusiness Spring Meeting. And, you know, it was good to hear the general consensus from these bankers in Nebraska is that credit quality has improved from 2015 so they've seen inputs come down things look a little bit more stable on the farm in nebraska which was a relief to these folks and uh definitely just good to hear all over but today i am well i'm I'm currently in salina kansas but i'm headed to great bend smoky hills public television which has carried market to market for i believe every year that we've been nationwide um, they are doing a, a meet and greet. I get to go down, give a little presentation, uh, talk to a lot of market-to-market fans in Kansas. So I'm pretty excited about that. Oh, that is exciting. And I guess maybe we should clarify here for our listeners who may not know you as well. You do a lot of public speaking for agriculture through not only market-to-market, but also just as Mike Pearson. Yeah, yeah, I certainly do. You know, I like to get out there. I get to see a lot of the countryside and talk to folks from all different walks of agriculture. And it's pretty cool. So this is going to be a lot of fun. I've got, uh, well, you know, I say it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, You know, we'll probably have to talk about the markets, which won't be a lot of fun. But then we'll go and we'll have some fun. Well, that sounds good. Yeah. So for any listeners out there, um, if you ever need public speakers or need a host or anything like that mike does a wonderful job so feel free to look him up well thank you delaney you're welcome and you do a little bit of public speaking as well as long I as do. we're uh, tooting our own horns let's just toot them <laughs> all out there book delaney as well yeah i think we both offer some um, interesting perspectives you talk a lot of markets and what's going on domestically and i bring the wider scope and talk international ag but exactly. i think uh we both offer some great things. So Yes, and book now. Book I, now, is that what you said? Right, yeah, book now. <laughs> Go ahead and give us a call. We'll always take your money. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> nice. Delaney, what, what's going on in the broader world? Speaking of the big picture, what's happening out there in the world of news? Sure thing. Well, there's uh, quite a bit of news coming out of Washington today, and that's what I want to discuss. Scott Gottlieb is having his hearing today. He is the nomination for the FDA commissioner. And so we will see how that turns out. Do we have anything further from uh, Sonny Perdue? Do we know when a vote is supposed to happen? Will they get it done before Easter? Delaney, what have you heard? Yes. Well, so 
the Senate goes into recess on Friday. And so they're really hoping to get a vote done Thursday. Um, but that's a tight time crunch for them. And so a couple senators have been holding the vote because of Purdue's stance on opening trade with Cuba. That just came out today. I saw something oh. saying that a few a few senators were uh, yeah trying to hold the vote. And so I think now some of those issues have been cleared up. One of the senators was Marco Rubio, um, Robert Menendez. And so they were both very opposed to Purdue's stance, I guess, on opening trade with Cuba. Interesting. So So they weren't going to allow the vote unless he changed his mind? Is that what they were saying? I, I, I think so. Yeah, I think that maybe not changed his mind, but I think maybe explained more of his stance and what uh, what they wanted. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. So uh, chairman, the agriculture chairman, Pat Roberts, asked for a unanimous consent to move to the vote sometime this week. And they're hoping to do that Thursday because otherwise they will not get to vote on that until they come back from recess in May. Oh, man. OK, hopefully we can get so, a secretary installed before then. Jeez. Yes, they're really hoping to push it through this week, but uh, there's a lot of things obviously on the docket. I guess since they are going to recess. But you know, how long does it take to say yay or nay for uh, I know. you know a hundred people for crying yeah. out and loud? It, Come and on, it's agriculture. It. You know, like they have a lot of other other issues they should probably be dealing with at the same time. So. We'll see how it goes, but you what bet. what news do you have, Mike? Well, you know, it's interesting. You brought up the uh, the stance on opening trade with Cuba, especially with uh, with Marco Rubio, who of course is no fan of the Castro regime down there in Cuba. But there was another piece of news. I guess it was out yesterday. The uh, the president of the U.S. Cuba Trade and Economic Council reports that uh, we have a shipment of rice going from the U.S. into Cuba, the first shipment of its kind in a decade. Uh, it's a little shipment. It's valued at about uh, 250000 bucks, But, you know, it's it's a little bit of trade. Hey, we're getting some rice sold. That is positive. So it's interesting. That ties in with that, uh, that news about Cuba there in the uh, confirmation. And it makes sense that agriculture would want to open trade with Cuba. I was reading an article that said, I believe the shipping costs of shipping to Cuba was about seven or eight dollars um, a ton. I want to say it was a ton Okay. as compared to shipping to Europe was like 12 to 15. So the the cost of just doing business with Cuba because they're so much closer, I think, is why a lot of agriculture producers wanted to open that relationship back up. Right. And, you know, they are. Uh still a very very poor country you know hunger is an issue they import uh, the vast majority of their food you know just from a humanitarian standpoint i think some folks have made the argument that we're 90 miles away let's sell them food you know i mean might as well let's get some of our uh, surpluses offloaded onto uh, that island and maybe it'll be beneficial um you know delaney we're talking about international stuff cuba being international there was some international news that uh, relates to ChemChina and the Syngenta merger slash purchase. Oh, the, yeah. Yeah, so that was something that just kind of got put on the back burner. I think it pushed out of a lot of people's minds as things you know, kept plugging along with the election. But the FTC, Federal Trade Commission, told ChemChina yesterday that the agency will approve their $43 billion purchase of Syngenta if... 
ChemChina sells some assets, specifically uh, three different pesticides. That's the only uh, uh, condition, I guess, that they've put on that sale. Uh, Paraquat is one of those that will have to be sold. Abamectin, and uh, used in citrus and fruit tree, fruit tree crops. I'm not familiar with it. And... Oh, my goodness. One used on peanuts and potatoes. I'm going to try to pronounce it. Chlorothin, chlorothalonil. Chlorothalonil. Yeah. I don't know. My apologies. Sure. That sounds good. Potato producers. That's one. So those are the three that FTC says Syngenta has to sell before uh, they will approve this murder. Gotcha. And does it give a reasoning why? Just um, conflict it, of interest? Let's see. Yep, it is. Uh, without selling off the pesticides, the two companies combined would have more than 60% of the Paraquat market, 80% mm. of the Abamectin, and uh, 40% of the other one. So, so just to ensure a freer market is yeah. why they're, they're reasoning. Yep. Gotcha. Yep, they don't like to see uh, single producers controlling so much, of, uh, so much market share. Right, right. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, what else you got? Well, in other news coming out of the White House, um, the House Agriculture Committee is holding a tax discussion reform this morning. And so it's a little bit unique because it's the first time this year, or at least since President Trump has been in office, that they are giving producers, farmers and ranchers an opportunity to get their voice heard. So they're specifically discussing the death tax, which is the tax an estate tax that when a farm is passed from or land is passed from one generation to another, that ground is taxed again. And so anything over $5.4 million is taxed. And so I think a lot of producers and ranchers and farmers are planning to be there at that hearing or that meeting today to hopefully get some changes made for the industry. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. There's been a lot of talking, uh, a lot of talk, rather, about the estate tax. And, you know, the exemption now for a couple is up to $10.8 So it doesn't have a huge impact on a lot of businesses. But it's I think it's the principle of the thing. It's I've paid tax on my income my entire life. And now you want to tax it again just so I can pass it on right. to my heirs. And, uh, you know, that leaves a sour taste in people's mouths uh, justifiably. You know, if, especially especially because some of the ground has been in in the families, I mean, literally for generations, you know, since America's probably even started. They have century farms, you know, times four or five. And so I think that would probably be a little bit hard to pay taxes on something you've owned for so long, even before the government was really a government. Right. Yeah. You know, and uh, actually, uh, I guess while we're on the topic of government, there is good news for American agriculture, specifically livestock producers. There was a settlement recently between the American Farm Bureau, National Pork Producers, and the EPA. So, gosh, I think it was last year, uh, the EPA released to the National Resources Defense Council, Earth Justice, and the Pew Charitable Trust the names physical addresses, all kinds of personal information about livestock producers to these groups. And naturally, uh, being in livestock production, nobody wants, you know, we live on our businesses, so it's, it wasn't right that all of this was disclosed. So Farm Bureau and the NPPC sued the EPA, 
and uh, they came to a settlement that from now on the EPA can only release the city, county, zip code, and permit status of an operation. So that is all the information they're going to be allowed to publish. Um, before, yeah, so before they release names, phone numbers, email addresses, and GPS coordinates of 100,000 farmers to uh, those environmental groups, that won't be allowed to happen any further. Yeah, that uh, that makes sense, and I think that's exciting news for Farm Bureau, especially since when we talked to Todd Jansen, they were really the industry or the group that sort of led the efforts to defining some of the ag data transparency rules and regulations. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So here's another, uh, you know, another feather in their cap, I suppose. And uh, hopefully it'll it'll help keep American uh, livestock producers, you know, out of the crosshairs of those groups, because you do not want to get in sideways and have people, you know, picketing and protesting and all that stuff. Right, right. Well, Nick, it looks like we have some mixed numbers in the markets today. Do you want to read the closings for us? I would actually love to talk about the marks today. We've got a lot of green on the screen. Let's start with corn. May corn closed up one and three quarter cents at 364 and three quarters. December corn up one and a half at 389 and a quarter. In beans, finally, finally, we get a rebound. May beans closed up six and a half cents at 944 and a quarter. Noby beans up five cents at 954 even. On the wheat side, May wheat up two and three quarter cents at 429 and three quarters. December wheat up two cents at 477 even. Let's take a look at the livestock side. April live cattle closed up a nickel at 118.27 and a half. June live cattle up 12 and a half at 109.42 and a half. In feeder cattle, the nearby April feeders down 50 cents closed at 130.52 and a half. May feeders up 12 and a half at 130.42 and a half. Over in the hog market, April lean hogs were up a nickel, 63.72 and a half. May lean hogs up 32 and a half cents, closed the day at 68 and a half. So, Delaney, that is where the market's finished for the day, but we are not finished for the day. We have a pretty good conversation coming up next, don't we? We do. Joining us here in just a moment is Dustin Stanton. Dustin and I actually got to know each other. We went on a trip to Japan, the same one that Lauren Schwab and I went on a few years back with the U.S. Grains Council. But Dustin and his brother Austin have been farming and raising chickens for a really long time. And so they were at one point the largest free and open range egg operation in the United States. Um, And they've been dealing with some FDA recommended changes. So they're no longer that. But they do have, I think he mentions like 7,500 chickens. And so they have a huge operation. They raise a lot of eggs. And they're really a start-to-finish farm operation. Yes, indeed. Let's just uh, let's let Dustin fill us in. Joining us now is Dustin Stanton. Dustin is a Missouri farmer, and he and his brother have been raising chickens and, more specifically, eggs for a really long time. Dustin, you got started in the late 90s, but what has your journey been like to start your own business and raising chickens in today's day and age? It's been good. Um, you could say it kind of started by accident because in a way it did. The local 4-H here in mid-Missouri from Centralia, uh, we had a incubation project with six baby chicks in the first grade. Um, I really wanted those chicks too, and I was the only one that wanted them until the very last day, and another girl also wanted them too. So both of our names went in a hat. 
and of course you won. <laughs> Um, I was in the first grade, so I actually came home crying. I was really upset about that. <laughs> but I cried to my uncle, and the next day when I came home, I got a, got my first six baby chicks. Um, and the way our parents let us keep them um, as a way to have an allowance rather than just give us money, this was a way for us to sell the eggs to people who went to our church, neighbors, family, friends, and just kind of have our own little money on the side. Um, that was 1999. In 2007, I started high school. I joined the FFA and bought 500 chickens and started selling at a local farmer's market. And just kind of to fast forward real quick, from then to now, it's grown quite a bit. Uh, we had over 20,000 birds. We were the nation's largest independent free-range egg operation. And we're down to about 7,200 right now. Um, we sell to about 50 outlets in mid-Missouri, um, various places such as the University of Missouri itself, um, as well as restaurants, nursing homes, bakers, um, Hy-Vee's, uh, Lucky's Markets, Schnooks, uh, a whole gamut. So how much time do you spend every day collecting eggs? I ass- are these just in a large barn? How are the uh, how are the birds living right now? They right now um it's a cage-free operation. So they're in a building under roof and they still lay everywhere. <laughs> okay. So we get a lot of floor eggs and that kind of that can be a problem too. So we have a really nice belt system, but of course Chickens don't really care about that, so they still like to lay on the floor. <laughs> um, for some reason, the floor always looks better than the egg nest. So <laughs> we're still picking up, you know, half the eggs off the floor, half in the belt. Um, the good thing with the belt, though, is that it does bring eggs to the front of the building, which has a processing room, and then they go straight to an egg washer to be boxed and refrigerated all on the same day. Wow. Yeah, you guys have a you have a pretty slick operation. You and your brother and your dad designed that building that your chickens are currently housed in. Is that correct, Dustin? Yep. Um, so you know, a lot of you know dads and sons they built cars in high school or fix stuff up like that. But we actually took on um, building the chicken building, the egg building. <laughs> it is a forty by two hundred. Uh, we started in two thousand ten by doing the dirt work, and to be honest, it was all hired out. Um, but the people that we had hired out to poured the concrete, and they really messed up and did a whole bunch of other stuff that wasn't quite right, um, as well as the price going up. So we decided to take it on ourselves um, in our free time, and that's kind of said with air quotes. Um, <laughs> so we got that done in about four years, um, but we saved a lot of money in the process. We learned a lot. It's a European style. It was the first European style in the Midwest. It was the third in the country. I think there was a couple over on the coast done too um, but it was state-of-the-art everything put in it's up to date um, it's incorporated with technology and the best production practices available dustin what is european style so there is the american style and that's what most people are familiar with it's simply where you have egg nest in the center of the building and you have slats that connect directly to the egg nest and they go down about two-thirds of the way and the chickens can just simply walk up to the nest through that. Uh, European style actually incorporates by opening up everything. Um, what what I mean by that is there's a, a person to jump up onto and then jump up onto the nest, and they can also go underneath the nest too. Oh. So the way you figure the way you figure production capacity is based on floor space. Um, and so by adding the European style, you gain all the floor space that would be underneath the perches plus underneath the desk itself. Um, so literally we gain about 44% production capacity 
whenever we switch the style because we gain all the floor space underneath the nest as well as underneath a little bit of the perch too. Wow. So it's a way to kind of, it's a new way um, to be able to house more. Yes. Still have plenty of room. Yeah, that's very cool. Anyway. Yep. That is. Dustin, you sound so knowledgeable about not only poultry production, but just farming and agriculture in general. How did you learn everything that you've learned today? I mean, obviously you went to school at the University of Missouri and got an education, but was a lot of this stuff just through trial and error or talking to other people yeah. in the industry? Yeah, um, I learned a lot of what I've learned today by making a lot of mistakes. <laughs> you can quote me from saying that. Um, I mean, trial and error, that's huge to me. Uh, I think wisdom is extremely important. So also having a good mentor system. Um, other people, well, from different viewpoints too. Sometimes we really get stuck on the same viewpoint, and then you make the same mistakes. <laughs> so it's important to talk to different people, get different points of view, but then to make the right decision based off all the information. Um, yeah, I think education is extremely important. did go to the university, major in ag business, I think that's important to know how to to control your finances. Um, that can really be a problem for a lot of people. They can be really, really good farmers. Um, and there's a lot of really good farmers that I say probably have better production than I do. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to finances, they don't quite understand that. And that can really be a killer, especially in today's ag market. Um, being able to control interest and watching government involvement and even foreign policy is really important in what we do. So being aware of your surroundings and realizing that something's about to happen, what's the best way you can control your operation? Now, with your operation, how much time is spent going out calling on retailers? I mean, you're in not just production, you're also in sales, Dustin. How has that been going? Yeah, our our business is really integrated, too. So we sell eggs and that's what we focus on but we actually go all the way back to raising the grain on the farm. Um, so it's a diversified family farm with cattle and row crops. So we're able to raise the food for the chickens on the farm as well as feed them and grind that for them. And then, like you said, deliver the eggs to the final end consumer. Um, Austin and I, there's two of us, he focuses a lot on the production. So everything from growing the grain all the way to taking care of the chickens. And then we commingle too, so I'm also involved with that. But I'm also involved in more of the in-production of the sales and the marketing, uh, making sure things move from point A on the farm to point B for the consumer. And that can be challenging sometimes, too, but also very rewarding. Um, Again, as farmers, we kind of get stuck sometimes in a paradox where we spend all of our time on the farm. And that's really good. I love being here. But we kind of have to get out of that box, too, to be able to talk to consumers about what we do. And so I think that's really important, too. So we have to find that balance of doing both of those. So you and your brother, Austin, you guys started Stanton Brothers Eggs, and what year was that? We got the first six chickens in 1999. Right, 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 but that, the business part. When did you, um, I guess, actually, did you register, like, as an LLC or a corporation or anything? So in Missouri, if you just, the way it's done, if you announce, hey, we're a partnership, that is all the legal action you have to do. Oh, okay. So if you want to, you could say 99. Um, you could say 07. Um, it's kind of variance, and I'm okay with whichever route you go. Because so, 07 is when we became more public, selling at other institutions, and the 99 was more just local 
people we knew. Gotcha. Okay. Now, when you go out and call on retailers, folks that are going to buy your eggs, have you noticed mm-hmm. just in the, geez, 10 years you've been out there trying to, or working to make this grow, have you noticed more people get interested in knowing where their food comes from and all that kind of thing? Is that helping you guys uh, market your product? No, absolutely. I mean, our timing was accidental, yet it was perfect, too. Um, that was really a lot when the whole local food movement was going on. Um, and there was both good and bad parts to that, too. Um, what people don't realize is a lot of those people want to know where the food comes from, but they just don't always have the most primary of sources. Um, and so to be there to give true information on both sides has been very good. And then, like you said, people wanting to know where the food comes from and kind of pushing that and be able to sell that, too. I mean, when I go to sell eggs, the very last thing I talk about is price. Um, because anybody can sell that. <laughs> but there's a lot more to it, such as the quality of what you're doing, um, the knowledge of what you have of the product, plus being able to share that knowledge to the consumers, and they want to know um, what's going on. So being able to share that is very important. On an average week, how many eggs do you think that you sell to retailers or at farmers markets or just to local neighbors? Mm-hmm. The production cyclical, so it goes up and down based on temperature and sunlight and things like that. On average, though, it's about 3,500 dozen per week. 3,500 dozen. Oh my goodness! Wow. What's, <laughs> what is? Yeah. What does the future hold for you when you look out there? What What are your uh, What are your goals here going forward? Well, um, goal wise, it's variable. There's personal as well as business goals. Um, being able to balance that can sometimes be a struggle, but that's a necessity too. Um, we, honestly, as far as Ingles, we would love to be able to sell from coast to coast. Um, that's been a goal we've had for a long time, and we're still pushing towards that. We're doing that in a smart way too. I know a lot of businesses will take out a big loan to grow really big, really fast. And in case you ever notice, we don't do that. <laughs> we really just like to be smart about the business decisions we make. Um, so being able to grow more sales is definitely important. Um, be able to sell to more wider audience, as well as doing stuff production, production-wise, the best way possible. Like I mentioned, with our building styles and be able to grow the grain on the farm to be in control of the quality too. So with being able not to lose the personal touch that we already have, yet grow it at a larger scale at the same time. Very cool. Now. You you mentioned to me we had a conversation before the interview and you said that you were at one point in time the nation's largest free and open range egg operation but recently you've had to go to cage free so what you said you had some FDA regulations that occurred what happened with that right so with not just us but all farmers anymore um, we're not just farmers but we're also <laughs> in a sense, legislative assistance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we spent a lot of time dealing with that stuff too, new rules, new regs. Um, that's always happening, it seems like. Um, 2008, there was a new rule that came out about an egg law. Pretty much, long story short, there's different pieces and parts in it. And if you have 3,000 birds or more, you fall into it at this point. Um, we were actually the only one that was free, was free raised to fall into it, that, to it when it came down on us. Um, that was that large. And in doing that, <laughs> there's different parts about chickens cannot be in standing water, which layman's terms means a rain puddle, or 
If a bird flies over the farm and if it defecates on the farm, they claim that all the eggs, if they're outside, will be contaminated. Um, we've been uh-huh. finding that for a very long time. Um, we've recently moved to the cage-free system to move them inside just because it's been a burdensome thing that's been thrown down on us. Um, it's one of those one of those things that, I don't know the right way to say it, has came down, and I don't agree with all of it, but it's what's being enforced now. And so it's something we have to follow. So do you guys still classify as the nation's largest cage-free egg operation? No, no not necessarily cage-free, because um, almost everybody is turning to cage-free. Okay. Um, with California passing their new laws, everyone over there on the West Coast has been converting to that. And then even here in Missouri and Iowa in the Midwest, a bunch of the farmers have been converting to cage-free because there's been lawsuits about mm. California not allowing our eggs, I mean, as an industry, into their state. So the industry is kind of converting over to that in order to abide by those new rules that they put down on the other farmers as well. Um, so really everybody has been, in a sense, going both ways. Um, the free range is pushing back to cage-free, and the cage is pushing, in a sense, forward to cage-free. So what I don't like about that is that it doesn't differentiate anyone. We have mm-hmm. the big thing about the egg market has been the different practices farmers have had. And so it's kind of thrown everyone into a big bucket. And as far as having a free market system, that's the opposite of that. And I'm highly opposed to that. Right, because you were able to market yourself with a differentiated product, a differentiated differentiated mm-hmm. production model, and now if everybody is forced to go to it, yeah, then you're just selling a commodity. That would be frustrating. Yep, absolutely. And I don't think anybody quite understands that. Because as a consumer, especially if you don't quite know all the details, you think, oh, that sounds great. But in doing so, you kind of lump some everyone, and you really hurt a lot of farmers on both ends. Nope. Really, nobody wins in the end. Mm. Uh, the egg price goes up for the consumer, and the producers get paid less because, well, actually, you're all the same now, so there's no ways to market yourself differently. With switching to having all your birds either inside or outside, are you ever concerned about an avian influenza outbreak? Um, we're always looking out for that. Um, I know there has been reporting this year, yeah, there's been yeah. a few down south and over around Tennessee and Kentucky, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're watching out for that. A lot of that's done by migratory birds. And so, <laughs> seriously, all you can do is just pray. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I know they say, well, biosecurity, we definitely take precaution for that. But I know some of the most safest places that have caught it before. And so we are cautious about it. Um, a big benefit for us, though, too, is that since we're independent, we don't have the feed trucks coming to the farm. We don't have the egg trucks coming to the farm. Everything's done on this farm, so we're not bringing in other bacteria or other pathogens from other farms. Um, so that's a huge benefit that a lot of farmers don't have, um, that we're very fortunate to be in that situation to have. So it's still a concern, something to watch out for, but praying is what all you can do. Yeah. Hmm. Well, Mike, do you have any other questions for Dustin? I don't, Dustin. I mean, this is this is really interesting. Thanks for taking the time. Delaney, if you've got something more, you can uh, take it away. I I think that we ought to let Dustin get back to work here. 
Again, a big thank you to Dustin. He was mentioning to us earlier that uh, they have been having some crappy weather down there in central Missouri as well. Really rainy and gross. So ho- hopefully he uh, gets some nicer weather here pretty soon. He was yeah. mentioning also that their uh, their wheat was not doing very well anymore. It's getting really, really wet. So I'm sure a lot of producers in the area are also having those problems. Yeah, I bet so. But I tell you what, Delaney, coming from uh, Kearney down to Hayes yesterday, I passed a lot of winter wheat fields. And in that part of the world, they looked really good. I mean, was up probably, uh, you know, shin height, bushy and green mm. and growing well. So, you know, I just, I suppose it'd be a lot more exciting if, if there were decent returns in the wheat market. But, right. uh, you know, it is what it is. Yeah, yeah. So what do we have coming up the rest of this week, Delaney? Well, tomorrow I have nailed down a time. We're going to talk to Kurt Dahlmeyer. We're basically just going to interview all of Southeast Iowa, I'm sure, before the podcast is over. But uh, Kurt raises livestock, actually with my dad and a few other um, people in the Southeast Iowa area. And so he's going to be talking to us about his operations and what he's seen in the cattle industry. So I think it'll be a great interview. So make sure and tune in. Make sure and tune in. And to make it easier to tune in, just subscribe on iTunes or Google Play Music. And if you do subscribe and you like what we're doing, rate us and review us and uh, shoot us a comment on Twitter. Let us know what you want to hear. Let us know what uh, we can do better. So with that, Delaney, should we let the folks go for the day? Yep, I think that would be a good idea. All right. Thanks, everybody.